28 young men bathed by the shore, 28 young men and all so friendly, 28 years of womanly life and all so lonesome. She owns the fine house by the rise of the bank. She hides handsome and richly dressed after the blinds of the window. Which of the young men does she like the best, while the homeliest of them is beautiful to her? Where are you off to, lady, for I see you. You splash in the water there, yet stay stock still in your room. Dancing and laughing along the beach came the twenty-ninth bather. The rest did not see her, but she saw them and loved them. The beards of the young man glistened with wet. It ran from their long hair. Little streams passed all over their bodies. An unseen hand also passed over their bodies. It descended tremblingly from their temples and ribs. The young men float on their backs. Their white bellies bulge in the sun. They do not ask who ceases fast to them. They do not know who puffs and declines with pendant and bending arc. They do not think whom they souse with spray. I want to start here because there are a lot of different ways that we could approach Whitman and Dickinson. And I'll just go ahead and say from the start that um, for anyone who is an expert or even passingly familiar with both of these poets, you're probably going to be dissatisfied with the way that I'm going to approach them. The reason is, is because there's just so much information about both of them. And I thought about all the different ways I could approach them. Um, I could approach them from their death. I could approach them from their individual projects or their personalities. And I do hope to touch on all of those things. But I've been doing this entire podcast and we've been talking about such serious and high-minded stuff. We've been talking about myths and you know, people trying to survive and people starving and um you know i mean difficult topics heavy topics like race relationships and and the interactions between uh, native peoples and european settlers and you know faith and all this other stuff and so i thought why not start with something that's just completely different why not start to shift into more modernist territory and more modern themes by beginning the entire podcast with you know what else i mean if you um, can follow along with what I was just reading a moment ago, sex. Sex is a big part of the poetry of both of these poets. And there's a good reason for that. It's not just like to be you know, lurid or anything like that. It's because that's uh, one of the projects that they have. They want to go about sharing human nature, all of human nature, and sex is definitely a part of that. So I'm going to start there and build toward their project out of individual projects, I should say, out of um, this background, and then we'll move into some of those other aspects. So let's get started. Now, we're talking about human beings. Of course, we're talking about human beings. Whitman and Dickinson, though, are as polar opposite as opposite can be, and yet their poetry shares such key themes between the two of them, and so many characteristics that uh, I think that even if they hadn't been writing at about the same time period, they would inevitably be lumped together. Whitman was larger than life. He had a huge personality. Um, it's by some rumors, and you know, these are always rumors, there are always things that people say about writers, but by some rumors, he essentially walked into Emerson's office and said, I am the poet of America, and slammed down his book on Emerson's desk and said something like, you need to publish me. So that gives an illustration of the type of you know, rumors and ideas that float around about Emerson. Um, he wasn't afraid of life. He embraced it to, to every degree. Um, he lived it to the fullest. Um, a couple of other pieces of background, he was a, a gay man or a bisexual man. There's you know, not 
exactly, or people aren't exactly sure which one he falls onto. But I, I bring that up because, you know, again, we've been examining human nature to this point, and that's an important part of, of human nature. We need to, again, share and think about all experiences. And he definitely carries some of that into his poetry. Um, that shapes the way in which he thinks about the world. And that shapes the way in which he approaches describing that world to other people. Um, though, yes, he is the quintessential extrovert, that doesn't mean that he doesn't understand people um, or that he's you know so loud and boastful that he misses um, things around him. I would say that he's sort of the opposite in that way of uh, Benjamin Franklin. On the other hand, Dickinson, again, is probably the complete opposite of this. He was an introvert, the, the absolute epitome of being an introvert. Um, by some accounts, some people have guessed that she may have been uh, maybe bisexual or lesbian as well, but that's not here nor there. That's not necessarily proven. Uh, the thing that I can say definitely is that she was so extremely shy that she um, had trouble going outside. In one case, the, again, the rumor sort of is that uh, some kids came up to the house. They wanted you know, some candy or something like that. And she lowered a bucket in order to deliver the, deliver the candy to them because she didn't want to come outside and actually speak to them. But she was raised in a, a house that um, embraced and celebrated um, you know, poetry and uh, education. Um, she attempted to pu publish a couple of things during her lifetime. It, you know, it went sort of mixed and uh, had a handful of them published. But at the end of her life, when she died, um, she left behind basically a large box uh, full of poems, and they were, you know, scrawled on all kinds of things. And uh, she left orders that those things should be burnt. And her sister, you know, you just can't dump this stuff straight into a fire because it will set your house on fire because, you know, that makes everything go up in flames. But um, her sister began burning the poems one by one by one, but then started reading them and, and realized, wow, this is really good stuff. I, you know, I think I need to save these. And so what we have from Dickinson then is... Uh, just a scattering of poetry that, you know, we, we can't ask her like, Hey, what do these dashes and, and pieces of punctuation mean? Because she wasn't around to be able to answer that or to edit it. Um, I note that because as you read through, that's one of the key characteristics you can think of concerning Dickinson. Like what do these dashes mean? Are they longer or shorter pauses? We don't know. Most editors, including your textbook editors, just translate them all into one dash length, but um, they were actually, um, of different different lengths on the page in her handwriting. So that's a way that we can approach her work. But both of these writers are breaking tradition. They're not writing poetry in the you know AB, AB rhyme scheme or doing necessarily um, you know things like sonnets. Instead, they're doing free verse. And that free verse is is capturing something about the United States, but in very different ways. A second ago, I mentioned that they are human beings, and I had brought that up because this is, I try to keep these to about 20 or 30 minutes, just so that you have a bite-sized chunk of, you know, what these different authors are like. And so I, I wanted to just give those broad characteristics of both authors so that that way I can jump straight into the poetry, because that's what I would rather spend my time talking about. And so again, if you know these poets well, you're probably like, oh, there's so much more. There, Yes, there's so much more, but you know, I'm trying to give a broad overview here. All right, let's go back to that poem that I actually started with. Um, why is this poem extraordinary and how does it fit with some of the things that I just said? It is extraordinary because we have a white man writing about the sexual desire of a woman for men, right? And I, I just want you to think about that for a second. To this point in the course, when we have talked about the sexual desire of women, like we, we specifically looked at some of it in Bradstreet and made the argument 
that she was subtly expressing sexual desire for her husband as a part of one of the poems. Uh, this is instead, you know, what would traditionally be a white male just concerned with white male things. You know, I'm, I'm in charge. I'm the, I, mean, I don't know how to put it. I'm the patriarch. I'm just concerned about patriarchal things. Um, instead, what he's doing is he's looking at the entire world. He's looking at everyone around him. And it is quite extraordinary that he would be able to be sympathetic at a time period like this with the woman looking out the window at a bunch of guys in the water bathing, you know, I mean, naked bathing out there in the water and to be able to understand that she does have sexual desire for individuals like that and then to want to go and put that to paper. Um, the reason I brought up his sexuality a minute ago is because I think that that's one of the, the key reasons he can sympathize. It's not because, you know, he's living vicariously through the woman or something like that. I think that that's over, oversimplifying it. I think rather it's the fact that he does not have a more traditional sexuality um, at this time period that he, you know, he's exclusively attracted to women or maybe not at all attracted to women that he is able to say, I wonder what it would be like for other people. And to look at, you know, a woman again and to say, you know, she has sexual desire just like I do. And, you know, it, it's a it's a different thing for her. So I, I'm going to try to capture that. I'm going to put that onto the page. And so he does this. Um, he does this in, in this particular poem, but there are a couple of others, too. And let's also look at some from Dickinson. OK, some of the others are a little bit more on the nose than the one that I, I just read a second ago. Uh, number 28 in Song of Myself is definitely one of them. Um, this one is is very straightforward. And if you understand it in those terms, you I mean, you can easily navigate this content. Um, is this then a touch quivering me to a new identity? Flames and other making a rush for my veins. Or a little bit further down, I'm given up by traitors. I talk wildly. I've lost my wits. I and nobody else am the greatest traitor. I mean, he's describing essentially the, you know, the way people lose their minds when they um, enter into you know, the sexual experience of some sort. So he he is describing that. And I would say that Dickinson is doing some of the same as well. Now, there there might be others who agree, disagree with this interpretation, but if we look at uh, 241, uh, and also this is marked as 339, I like a look of agony because I know it's true. Men do not sham convulsion or uh, simulate a throw. In other words, this is you know her describing a, an encounter with a man of some sort. Uh, and I bring this up again because these things tie back to their project. And the first case, in Whitman's case, he is writing about, and I'll just go ahead and set the entire project out, and we'll look at some other examples in a second by shifting to a different topic. Um, he is going about describing all of reality. That's what Song of Myself is. Um, he wants to go and accomplish the project of, of really documenting everything he sees around him. And that includes, yes, the sexual relations with other people because that's part of humanity. That's part of human life. On the flip side, Dickinson is is writing for her own amusement. And so she is you know, picking whatever topic just happens to catch her attention. Some of her poems are very dense in the sense that we're not quite sure you know, what she's approaching or who she's talking about or what the situation happens to be. Some of them seem to be contextually specific, but some of them also seem to have, again, themes that run in common with Whitman. And that's why I would point to the, you know, the one that I pointed to just a second ago. Now let's again telescope further back and look at uh, these projects and exactly how else they manifest. So let me do that by concentrating on just one of them for you know a couple minutes, and then we'll go back to Dickinson as well. 
Uh, let's look at Whitman's individual project where he's, again, trying to capture everything around him, but he's trying to capture it through himself, hence the Song of Myself. Song of Myself is not just, you know, like what we talked about with Thoreau before, where he's only exploring himself. He's exploring how he encounters the world. And that means that he's trying to document the world, trying to document himself as part of the world. Uh, it's it's kind of a jumbled mess, but at the same time, it's quite brilliant because, uh, I mean, really, again, it goes back to some of the things I talked about with Thoreau. Who are we if we're not our roles? And he's engaging with that. Who am I? How am I engaging with the world around me? How is the world around me influencing me? And he, he again, talks about all these aspects of human nature for everyone, not just for himself. Um, let me give you a couple of examples. So if we look at number 21 in Song of Myself, I am the poet of the body, I am the poet of the soul. The pleasures of heaven are with me and the pains of hell are with me. The first I graft and increase upon myself, the latter I translate into a new tongue. I'm the poet of the woman, the same as the man, and I say it is great to be a woman as to be a man, and I say there is nothing greater than the mother of men, and so forth and so on. So he's celebrating everything, uh, everyone. He's not just saying, you know, isn't it great to be a man <laughs> or anything like that. He is saying, isn't it great to be anybody? Isn't it great to be alive? And again, that's quite extraordinary because he sees things from all angles or is trying to see things from all angles. Another quick example, just to jump kind of backward here and ease into some others. Number 15, if you look at this, you might say, gosh, this is just a really long list. I mean, things like the young fellow drives the express wagon. I love him, though I do not know him. The half-breed straps on his light boots to compete in the race and so forth and so on. It's just a long list of things. Why is he making a list? Because that's what he sees around him. He's trying to document the things he sees around him because they create him as much as he creates them, right? But again, he, he's doing this with everyone. And we jump back to number 10. The runaway slave came to my house and stopped outside. I heard his motions crackling the twigs of the woodpile. Uh, through the swing, uh, yeah, through the swung half door of the kitchen, I saw him limpy and weak and went where he sat on the log and let him in and assured him and brought water and filled a tub for his sweaty body and bruised feet. Then he goes on to describe this a little bit more, but he ends with, um, I had him sit next me at table, my firelock leaned in the corner. In other words, I treated him like a human being. I invited him in, I helped him, I cleaned, you know, I, I gave him the opportunity to clean himself, I fed him, I gave him water, um, I had him sit at the table with me as an equal, and I didn't even worry about where my gun was. He's careful not to note where the gun is because he's saying, like, I was in danger. He's telling the reader, I, I left it across the room because I knew I didn't need it. I was going to treat this person as an individual. He sees everything, all of reality, and he's trying to capture everything in equal measure. And again, I, I would guess that that comes from his ability to see beyond some of the, the traps that other people like him, white males like him, are falling into. And this is where it starts to drive some students crazy. And I have seen that in the classroom before. I've heard students say, oh, I just don't like him. I don't like this project at all. You know, I want one thing, just concentrate on one thing. That seems, you know, a little jumpy. We go from one thing to another. But that's because he realizes the broad scope of all of reality and how all of reality um, manifests in, in this particular moment for him. Uh, there are some famous passages here. Again, if you've ever seen Dead Poet Society, then you may have heard these before. But for example, number 52, the spotted hawk swoops by and accuses me. He complains of my gab and my loitering. I too am not a bit tamed. I too am, am untranslatable. I sound my barbaric yawp over the roofs of the world. 
In other words, I, I'm not going to try to put this into a form. I'm not going to try to uh, really even it out and make it in a more traditional way. I am like the, the spotted hawk. I have no form. I have nothing of that sort. But this is not just, you know, let me set down everything. To him, it's almost like a religious service. And we can see this in other aspects, like number 44. It is time to explain myself. Let us stand up. Now, if you've ever been in a church in your life, you know that when it's time to sing the hymns, you stand up. And so that's what he's indicating here. It is time for him to stand up. It is time for him to uh, go through this explanation. And that is a kind of holy reckoning that takes place. What is known, I strip away. I launch all men and women forward with me into the unknown. In other words, I, I'm trying to capture all these things. I've listed all these things. and I, I'm trying to put them down now so that they will be catapulted into the future. And as of, you know, the making of this podcast, this is the year 2020. And, you know, we're looking at something roughly like 1855 here. He has done that. He has catapulted these things forward so that they are a part of the conversation that we're having right now. Um, he says, he goes on to say in that, that one, number 44, I do not call one greater and one smaller. That which fills its period and place is equal to any. Again, anything is equal to any other thing. And I'm going about casting these things forward. I am an acme of things accomplished, and I am an encloser of things to be. So I'm trying to put these ideas, these concepts, these lived experiences into words. And this is, I think, why some students don't like it, because he's kind of frantic about it, right? If I were going to sit down and, and capture you know, my particular experience right now, um, yes, I'm making a podcast, but I'm also, I mean, sitting in front of a window, looking out the window, right? I'm sitting in a chair, my dog's on the floor next to me, my cat's around here somewhere. I, if I really wanted to truly capture my experience, I'd have to try to find a way to capture all of those things. And that's quite complicated, right? And it, it can feel very frantic because um, I, where am I supposed to begin? What what thing do I capture first? I need to capture all of them. And again, that's why he manifested in this particular way. So as you read through, look for those aspects. Look for where um, Whitman is capturing all of human experience and not judging any of it in his presentation. He's trying to put it onto the page uh, and subsume it through himself so that he can catapult it into the future as a way of capturing himself, but also presenting those ideas to other people, right? Um, it, just two more examples here. Do you, the past and present wilt, I have filled them, emptied them, and proceed to fill my next fold of the future. And this is in uh, number 51, do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. I'm large, I contain multitudes. That is uh, perhaps, I would argue, the most democratic um, United States poetry ever conceived because he, he does contradict himself. He is large, he does contain multitudes, and that's because he's he's perfectly describing the United States. And so it is a religious experience. It is a secular experience. It is um, you know, death. It is uh, dealing with people who are unlike you and people who are like you and all of those things. And that is what his poetry is all about. Okay, now let's move from Whitman on to Dickinson. Okay, so just a second ago with Whitman, I was talking about the fact that he wasn't using necessarily any one form throughout his poetry, and I believe I may have stretched that a little bit too far, so let me clarify that about uh, Dickinson. 
because Dickinson is actually using the common meter, and that is eight syllables in one line, six in the next, eight, six, with four lines in total and a rhyme scheme. And we, yeah, we can see this throughout her poetry, and uh, it, it does drive the poems. Uh, sometimes it stretches it just slightly, but um, that I wanted to make sure that I can clarify that before I move any further with Dickinson. One of her main themes, though, is death. And yes, that's part of Whitman's poetry as well, and I, I did skip past that and alight it slightly, but again, time. Um, death is a guiding force inside Dickinson's work. And the reason is it's because it's, it's um, as according to some scholars, it's like her companion, right? It is the thing that guides her, sh her shaping of everything else in her entire life, right? Including the way that she understands religion, the way that she understands interactions with other people. Um, I, I mentioned, you know, the, the throws thing just a second ago, the poetry that I read, um, that is actually a term that comes close to near death in some senses. So we can look at some, a couple of famous examples. Uh, we can look at, for example, 280 slash 340. I felt a funeral in my brain and mourners to and fro kept treading, treading till it seemed that sense was breaking through. Or we could look at uh, 465 and 591. I heard a fly buzz when I died. The stillness in the room was like the stillness in the ear between the heaven, the heaves of storm. The eyes around had wrung them dry and breaths were gathering firm for that last onset when the king be witnessed in the room. So she she does frequently picture herself as being dead, but this is because, as odd as it might seem, death is the thing that gives value to our lives, right? And so she's really negotiating that. She's trying to navigate that space as part of her poetry. So look for this as a, a common running theme um, some of her most often cited poetry does have themes of death running through it. So if death is one aspect, I would argue that this is because it is definitive, right? It is the end. It is the actual bookend of life. I mean, we have the beginning of life, which I, I don't think any of us can remember. Um, you know, we come into the world kicking and screaming and then life starts and we go along for a couple of years and then it's like our brain starts recording, but then we come to the end and death, and this is the other side. In between is a, uh, a strange space, and it is a space that you know we find ourselves sort of floating, as as Emerson said in Experience. But that's one of the things that Dickinson tries to capture in her poetry as well. This sort of ill-defined, undefined, unquantifiable, unquantifiable, I should say quality about life. And so I'll look at two quick examples, 303 slash 409. Uh, no, excuse me, excuse me, 288 slash 260. Sorry, I looked at the wrong page. I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell their advertise, you know. How dreary to be somebody, how public like a frog, to tell one's name the live long June and to be admiring bog. So in other words, she's celebrating sort of like this anonymity, right, which goes very well with um, her, her shyness, you know, and, and again, other people are going to interpret this in a very different way and maybe be dissatisfied with the way that I am approaching it right now, but that's okay. I'm trying to give you some foundations here, some groundwork. Um, that ill-defined, unquantifiable aspect of life. So she celebrates nobody here. Um, the other one that I always like to look at is uh, 657 slash 466. I dwell in possibility a fairer house than prose, more numerous of windows, superior for doors, of chambers as the cedars, impregnable of eye, and for an everlasting roof, the gambrels of the sky, of visitors the fairest for occupation this, 
the spreading wide my narrow hands to gather paradise. So let me just go ahead and say, those last two lines I, I could totally have tattooed across like my back. I think that those are um, perhaps some of the most beautiful lines in all of English. The spreading wide my narrow hands to gather paradise. But it's because she's coming to a point here. And the point is that uh, the possibility is poetry, right? Poetry can break bounds. Um, it doesn't necessarily always have to follow rules, as we saw with Whitman, but it can capture in a way that prose can't. I can write an entire sentence describing, um, you know, my, again, experience right now, I am looking out a window. But if I do it in a more poetic fashion, I capture something that the most deliberate prose in the world that could go on for paragraphs and paragraphs simply cannot capture which is, uh, you know, I look at the, the bruised aspect of the rain-soaked sky as it's about to pour down um, across my neighborhood. There's something in, you know, the intentionality of that that uh, captures an experience that, again, prose cannot, and that's what she's getting at with this I dwell in possibility of fairer house than prose, because it has more windows, it has more doors, it has more entry and exit points than um, would ha uh, traditional prose have. It has no roof necessarily, a chambers of, of chambers of cedars and pregnable of iron for an everlasting roof, the gambles of the sky. Again, it, it's built out of imagination, an imagination that she's trying to translate into words, but at the same time that she's trying to leave you know, open, like the windows and the doors. Um, and people who have imagination come to visit this poetry of visitors, the fairest, for occupation this, because this is what they all do. This spreading wide my narrow hands to gather paradise, to capture these amazing things, to capture these amazing characteristics in language intentionally as poetry and to present it to other people. Okay, that kind of walks you through some of the logic of her poetry. Um, it's very difficult, I think, to pin down Dickinson, far more difficult than Whitman for some of the reasons that I had uh, mentioned at the start of this podcast. She never intended for this to be published. She never intended for the world to read it. Um, in fact, I would say that reading it goes against every one of her wishes, and she would most likely be appalled that we're doing it. But at the same time, it's such wonderful, beautiful poetry that I would say it deserves to be read. And so that's why we include it as a part of this class. That is indeed a shorter introduction to Dickinson than Whitman. The reason, again, is because there's no single overarching uh, narrative that's going on in Dickinson. Each one of her poet, uh, poems is a little puzzle, and you have to you know, figure out your way through it. But by thinking about some of her themes and how they shape you know, her, her poetry, again, she's talking about individual experiences. We looked at things like sexual desire. We looked at death as a part of that. We looked at imagination and the unquantifiable nature of, of reality. Um, and yet, at the same time, of course, she has some more grounded themes. Uh, if we look at 444, it feels ashamed to be alive when men so brave are dead, when envies the distinguished dust permitted such a head. This is clearly about you know battles that are going on in, during her time period. Now, again, with all of this in mind, and I'm talking about the Civil War, uh, with all of this in mind, uh, again, take each poem, look at it, read, read it through, pause for a moment, and then you read it through again and try to figure out what each piece means. I think that's the easiest way to be able to approach these. Keep in mind that some of them are going to be far denser than others. Um, I'm you know, looking at a, a poem on the opposite page from the one I just read, 357, where she talks about Miles and Priscilla. That one's going to be more difficult because that's a reference that the average person these days is just not going to get. 
And I, I do freely admit that without the footnotes myself, I wouldn't get it either. Uh, so, you know, be patient with these. You, you need help. Uh, Dickinson's work is not easy to wade through, but I would say that it is indeed worthwhile. She has some absolutely beautiful lines in her work, and it is uh, worth your time and attention. And so, sadly speaking, that brings us to the end of this podcast. Um, we examined American Literature One. This podcast was intended for a class. I, you know, kind of put it out there into the larger internet as well, just in case it can help someone else in some other circumstance. But that is the end of this podcast series. Um, I may add others in the meantime. I may jam a few other episodes in there if I switch up to reading or something like that. My intent is to continue to build a podcast inside of, of this housing for my other classes as well. So I will pick this up again in the next semester. In the meantime, I do hope that you have enjoyed the series and that you've found it very useful. Um, I've actually enjoyed making it. I, I like being able to update this information and be able to share it. And it seems like based on some of the, the numbers associated with your anchor that, it, uh, that other people out there are indeed appreciating. So I will see you again at some point. Um, if you need to, you can shoot me an email. Uh, I will actually include my email address here just in case. jbowman0488 at stanley.edu. That's uh, where you can reach me professionally just in case you need to. Okay? Okay. All right. Well, I'll see you next season. <laughs>